Good morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Where we live affects numerous aspects of our health and well-being by structuring who we interact with, our access to green spaces, education, and social services, just to name a few implications of space and place. Not only are we shaped by where we live, but where we live is also shaped by what's happening in the present, as well as what has happened in our space in the past. To tell us more about how the past shapes our current day experiences of where we live, I'm joined by Dr. Ash Woody. Dr. Woody is an assistant professor of African-American studies at California State University, Fullerton. They received their doctorate and master's degree in sociology at the University of Oregon. Dr. Woody also holds a bachelor's degree in sociology from California State University, Long Beach. Their research focuses on racism and resistance in U.S. society. Welcome, Dr. Woody. It is such a pleasure to have you here with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Laybourne. I really appreciate you reaching out, especially since I literally just finished this project and my dissertation just probably several months ago and then launched right into my new job. So it's really cool just to be able to talk about this in a space, you know, that you've created here um, that just seems so conversational. And it's nice to take a little bit of a break from academic writing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Oh, my goodness. So this is so I'm so happy that you're here. And so listeners, you should know, um, I read Dr. Woody's article, which we're going to get into um, in just a moment. But I read their article. I absolutely loved it. My brain was like firing off with all these connections, especially thinking about Memphis, um, and this idea of space in place and both the histories of a space and place and how they're still impacting us today. And so I was like, my listeners would love to hear more. And so I just reached out and I'm so glad that you said yes. And here we are. And it's so amazing to hear that this project is really, you know, kind of fresh, um, but also that you're willing to talk about it because I know how some people feel about dissertation research. They're like, I just want to be done. (laughs) (laughs) yeah it definitely can feel icky at times especially having to revisit something that you've read over and over again right where you read it so many times it starts to lose its meaning but you know after putting this article out and just seeing people's enthusiasm about it it kind of helped me become more enthusiastic about it and re-energize me in certain ways about it so that's why I'm just glad to to be here and talk about it with you and just share some of the the key points and, and concepts that came out of this research Yes. Okay. So the article we keep referring to is in the journal Social Problems, and the title is Emotions and Ambient Racism in America's Whitest Big City. So just off the bat, you you introduced this concept of ambient racism. So can you tell us what you mean by ambient racism? Yeah. So that's a term that emerged from a lot of the interviews that I did with uh, Portlanders of Color. And, you know, I didn't want to think about it as just like another new form of racism that I'm adding to the long list of different kinds of racism (laughs) that exist, right? So 
the way that I think about it is just, you know, when we think about ambience, right? We think about, it's like an ambiance. It's kind of all encompassing. Uh, it surrounds us. It's kind of omnipresent. And so the way I define it in my paper is just sort of this subtly isolating kind of exclusionary characteristics that are sort of baked into a place whether that be the culture or baked into the built environment or just our daily interactions. Um, and in the case of Portland, this is in a majority white context, though ambient racism certainly isn't limited to majority white um, demographic contexts. So when I frame it this way as kind of this ambient thing, right, a, a manifestation of feeling, right, that just, you know, a lot of people from marginally, marginalized groups and multiply marginalized groups may know this feeling where you might not be able to point to a specific person or a specific thing or a specific instance, but it's a feeling that emerges or maybe a discomfort mm -hmm. that can sometimes be hard to articulate. And so this concept of ambient racism, you know, I wanted to be able to articulate that, at least put a name to that feeling. You know, it might, this might look like, you know, for, for women and feminine presenting people like walking in public, for example, you know, you might be anticipating violence, it may or may not happen, but, you know, nothing bad may happen, but there's that mental work and mental load of anticipating the potential for violence. And that can be uncomfortable, but a lot of marginalized people and multiply marginalized people may normalize that discomfort. So in coming up with this, you know, concept of ambient racism, I wanted to sort of put a name to that feeling. And in terms of race, this could also be, you know, that feeling that a person of color might have when they walk into a room that's full of white people. It doesn't, you know, no one may have to say anything or do anything that's overtly racist. Maybe they're staring, maybe there's like awkward smiling, but it's really just a feeling, right? Like the oxygen was sucked out of the room. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's kind of how I think about ambient racism. And this isn't something that I just made up. It really just emerges from what the people I interviewed told me. Mm -hmm. I love this idea of first being able to name the thing, right? Um, because now we have a way to talk about an experience that is very common across folks from a variety of different marginalized um, social groups. So the naming process, you know, having a concept, a term that we can then use and share across, right, as we're talking about these experiences. And one thing, I guess one reason why I was really excited when I read your paper was because it reminded me of when, um, I was coming to Memphis for the job interview. I had spent the last six years in the Washington DC area for grad school. And just the feeling when I got off kind of got off the plane and was kind of in the city, which I am originally from Memphis, but just that feeling, it was a different feel, right? And I couldn't really explain it, but whereas DC, you know, very racially and ethnically diverse, um, felt very affirming, I guess, in a way, um, coming back home to Memphis, it was actually kind of jarring in the sense of it felt a little less affirming and kind of a little bit like there was a heaviness over the city, which I think is very much tied to, if we think about MLK and his assassination here and really how that shaped the city in a lot of different ways. Um, and as I read your paper, I was like, maybe this is kind of that ambient racism, right? This feeling that, you know, 
again, is how I'm experiencing the city, but is also very much tied to past policies or legislation or past experiences of a city and that historical memory. And that's kind of what I was reading into your paper as well. Yeah, history is really a big part of this. And like, you know, what you're saying, just in relation to that feeling of literally just stepping off the plane and then kind of knowing or feeling that something's different is really a big part of it. And of course, like we, you know, as sociologists, we know that those feelings might be connected to historical events, um, but not everybody, you know, makes those connections, although they may have similar feelings, right? So I think, um, you know, you mentioned like coming, coming to a place sort of with fresh eyes, even though you had spent time in Memphis earlier in life, you were able to kind of see it again with fresh eyes. And that's what a lot of people that I interviewed said, you know, almost about half of the people I interviewed were transplants from different cities. So they were kind of able to go into Portland with a fresh set of eyes. Um, they had experiences in other major cities that were much more diverse and comfortable to them. And so I had people who literally told me, similar to what you're saying, that there was just this sense of malaise. They described it as malaise, like a, like a heaviness, as you described. And, um, you know, one woman, she's a Black woman, um, actually from the South. So she had grown up in predominantly Black environments and in kind of her own uh, mostly Black community. And, you know, she said that it just felt like there were ghosts or something. Like she couldn't really put her finger on what it was but she had, you know, was living in a neighborhood that was, uh, you know, had been gentrifying over the, the last couple of decades. So she knew that a loss had taken place, that there had been an erasure or a loss of, of Black community there. And that was something that she just felt, even though she didn't experience it firsthand as someone who had been displaced. Mm -hmm. I think that's key, right? Even though she hadn't experienced it personally, right? She was still feeling kind of those aftershocks of this process that had happened. And so that makes me wonder, you know, how much of these different processes like gentrification are impacting people who, you know, may not have experienced the gentrification or may not have been displaced because of gentrification, but like you said, are moving into an area, maybe brand new from another city, how much that's impacting people's experience of the city, but also for folks who maybe grew up in the area and have seen these transitions happening, you know, how much that's impacting their experiences as well because I know you talked to some folks who you know were from the Portland area and so how those experiences may have been similar or different. Yeah so again I mean while some of the newer transplants could sense and knew that there was this kind of long history of displacement particularly in north and northeast Portland which used to be home to predominantly black communities that um, aren't quite uh, there anymore. I mean, the, the, the demographics have changed a lot in those neighborhoods in Portland and mostly been replaced with a, you know, mostly white kind of uh, middle to upper middle income um, white population. And so a lot of the longtime Portland and Oregon resi residents talked about how, you know, because they grew up in that space, it was kind of normal, but at the same time, not comfortable. And so again, this kind of goes back to um, you know, how I think about ambient racism, which is kind of connected to the ways that marginalized groups may normalize discomfort. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, these longtime Portland residents were able to talk about that, that discomfort, but kind of kept going back to the, 
that's just kind of the way it was. Like I kind of just got used to it. You know, my parents would talk about it. I would talk about it with my parents or maybe immediate community, but that was probably just, you know, it was usually just limited to that. Um, but then there was, you know, the very material experience of displacement. You know, I talked to, you know, um, several people whose families were displaced from their neighborhoods and, you know, um, particularly black individuals, you know, who had experienced a loss of community. So like, you know, the aunties down the street who would take care of you after school, you know, or people who would feed you, right? Neighbors who you could trust and this, those kinds of community spaces and sort of community trust that may exist in, you know, immigrant or, you know, um, co uh, communities of color, right? Where that, those types of communities tend to emerge. Um, and just feeling the loss of that, that was deeply emotional for, for people who were displaced and people that I, that I interviewed who experienced it firsthand, either as children or as young adults. Mm -hmm. Yeah, our sense of community is so important and so integral to how we think about ourselves and then also how, you know, experiencing a neighborhood or community and those social ties are so key, which I mean, I think people are understanding even more over these past couple of years in the COVID-19 pandemic, just this importance of social ties and community in general. And so I think there's that connection to understanding how these experiences of displacement within a city are also impacting social ties and why that's important, right? Oftentimes, I think if we're taking the case of gentrification, people think about, oh, all you know, benefits of gentrification in terms of the city kind of overall a city's profile, uh, but also thinking about what are the losses that are inherent in these processes of gentrification, both for individuals and in different communities, but then also I think for the city as well and losing some of that rich history um, that a city has. Now, since we kind of already jumped into some of the, the findings from your study, let's take a step back and could you tell us a little bit more about the study itself? So um, listeners are probably gathering that you talked to folks in Portland. So could you tell us a little bit more about why Portland and some of the reasons why it's unique in thinking about this idea of ambient racism? Yeah, I mean, and, and still connected to this topic of gentrification, I had actually initially set out to study gentrification. That was, a, you know, how dissertations change over yeah. time. You think you have a plan, but then, you know, that plan just doesn't pan out the way you had expected it. So that's kind of what happened with this project where I set out to study gentrification in Portland. And after doing some initial interviews, everyone just started talking about racism. And so, you know, I was like, I think this is becoming a project about racism. Of course, gentrification is closely tied to racism, but this seems to be about the experiences of uh, communities of color in Portland. So, um, you know, I came into this uh, without a lot of familiarity with Portland. I'm from Southern California, um, like Los Angeles and, and Orange County area. So I come from a pretty racially diverse place where I didn't really experience what a lot of these individuals were experiencing on a daily basis, being in predominantly white spaces. So, um, you know, I came in as somewhat of an outsider. I used some personal connections. I was able to, you know, kind of put ads out there on social media, like, you know, looking to interview people of color in Portland about their experiences. This could be the experiences of transplants or longtime residents. And, um, you know, I was really, really impressed with just how much of a response I got. It really seemed like there were people who had been 
wanting to find a space to talk about this um because i don't think there are a lot of spaces uh, in the community where folks might feel safe or comfortable talking about this um and so this is a primarily qualitative interview-based project so i conducted around 50 interviews overall uh, and most of the interviews took place pre-pandemic so i was actually in the city of Portland, we were actually able to meet up at a coffee shop, like <laughs> let's grab coffee and actually talk in person, right? Yes. Um, so that was really nice, but I did end up doing some interviews during the pandemic, kind of at the tail end of things. So it definitely is specific to a pre-pandemic Portland. And I don't know if you had you know, been paying any attention to Portland specific news at that time, but in the summer of 2020, you know, the downtown area became Kind of a mess there were like you know um you know there were protests going on like the city brought in the police and it was just very militarized and so things got pretty chaotic for a while and i think uh 2020 might have shifted perceptions of portland in terms of it being sort of this liberal utopian place because we had these images of like militarized police just you know driving through downtown portland um, but anyways, yeah, this this study just, you know, started for me as a grad student in Oregon trying to figure out where am I? There's something interesting going on here. I think, you know, there's something to be said about the specific um, uh, racial history of the state of Oregon, because we tend to think of Oregon in the Pacific Northwest as this kind of liberal utopia. Um, and, you know, when you actually look at voting patterns, it is, it does skew liberal, you know, and, and democratic, I guess, if you wanted to describe it that way. Um, but I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the Pacific Northwest because it has a long history of racism um, that might seem more akin to the South, um, where, you know, Black people weren't even allowed to live in the state of Oregon, you know, until like the 1920s. And so there were some really strict black exclusion laws, you know, Asian Americans, along with other West Coast cities and Asians were, you know, Asian immigrants were pretty much banned from, you know, civic engagement and they were, you know, segregated in terms of housing and things like that. So at the same time, the Pacific Northwest and the state of Oregon specifically is like a hotbed for white supremacy. You know, it's um, has a really large, um, and, you know, I had a really large Ku Klux Klan presence and participation throughout the years. And even today, it's, you know, it's home to white supremacist groups like the, Pr the Proud Boys and um, a lot of kind of um, far right nationalists. And so it's this kind of weird contradictory place where you have a lot of hippies, liberals, white supremacists. It's still a mostly white place, but it's supposed to be progressive. Um, you know, you have the TV show Portlandia that kind of portrays the city in this quirky way. It's sort of utopian and just kind of silly and fun. There's nature, you know, hipsters, great coffee, right? Which is also true. There's just a lot going on in Portland. I thought this is such a strange and interesting place. And so I want to learn more, like what's going on here? Yes. You know, I, I think it's so important, you know, everything that you laid out as we're talking about how kind of the past really informs the present. I mean, thinking about some of those exclusionary laws that were really shaping Oregon to be this white utopia. And even though we might think, oh, those laws are no longer in place, the effects of those laws we can still see, um, as you even talk about the racial demographics of Oregon or Portland specifically, still being very white space, right? And again, there's no 
current law that says, oh, folks of color can't move here or can't live here. But again, just that past legacy of policies that did say that are still very much shaping the experience of folks of color in Portland. And we're going to get more into exactly what you heard from your interviewees in just a second, but let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Ash Woody, an assistant professor of African-American studies at California State University, Fullerton. And we've been talking about your paper in Social Problems, Emotions and Ambient Racism in America's Whitest Big City, focusing on Portland. And before the break, you gave us some insights into why Portland and to how this study got started. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your respondents. I know you mentioned some of them, you know, transplants, some folks, long time, you know, folks in the community, um, but could you kind of tell us about both racial and ethnic background as well? Yeah, so the racial and ethnic background of the people I interviewed for this study was, was pretty mixed. I would say it was about 25% uh, Black identified folks, 25% Latinx identified folks, around 40% Asian and Asian American identified folks, and the remaining, you know, being multiracial people and um, Pacific, people who identify as Pacific Islander. And so in some ways it kind of represented um, the, 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 the racial demographics of people of color in Portland, not very precisely, but I kind of tried to aim for that. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of these people, they skewed a bit young. So, you know, ranging from 19 to 49 years old, but uh, most of the people I interviewed were probably in their early 20s and mid to mid 30s. Mm -hmm. And so I think in a way, you know, that gave my respondents a very specific perspective on race, um, just from kind of a younger person's perspective or somebody, you know, somebody in college or someone who's younger and like moved to the city kind of fresh. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that also reflects like us as sociologists tendency to interview people who are closer to our age who seem a little <laughs> bit more accessible, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I was a grad student in my 20s going, you know, trying to connect with people in Portland, and that's just kind of how it ended up. But I do think there's something to be said about getting the perspectives of elders in the community, which was definitely missing in this project. And I think the perspective of elders could have really um, shaped the findings here. But I just kind of wanted to put that in there because it is a kind of age specific group of people. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say most of these people, yeah, most of the people I interviewed were college educated, either pursuing their degree in college or already held a bachelor's degree or even a master's degree. So these were people with some level of college education, which of course shaped the way that they talked about race. A lot of people had a level of race consciousness or like a language in which to talk about their racialized experiences that I think really shaped the findings here. But nonetheless, because of that, they were able to articulate these experiences in, in really deep ways that, you know, I think are really valuable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so as you were talking to your respondents and listening to these, you know, shared ex what what you found to be shared experiences right across your participants of these experiences of ambient racism, kind of what were some of the main themes that folks were reflecting upon um, in their experiences of Portland? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there were a lot of 
contradictory feelings that people had about Portland, especially uh, transplants to Portland. So um, there's this kind of running joke that in Portland, everybody is nice. Mm. Like they'll let you merge on the highway. They'll ask you how your day went when you go to the grocery store, right? So if someone, you know, if, if you're someone from New York or LA or some other major city like that, you're like, why are you talking to me? Why are you being so nice? Like, <laughs> I'm a little suspicious of this, right? Um, and so there's just this kind of permeate, permeating niceness there. And I think that was a little bit difficult for a lot of my respondents to reconcile with some of the experiences with racism that they were having in Portland. So, you know, I had a respondent, um, she was um, multiracial and, and, you know, she was commenting on how, you know, everyone's so nice at the store, everyone lets you merge on the freeway, but then she goes and gets on public transport and then she gets harassed, right? For the, you know, or, you know, she goes to work and she's experiencing all these microaggressions from, you know, white coworkers. And so there was sort of like this almost gaslighting happening where people were like, but everybody's so nice. Like, am I the crazy one to think that this just feels bad to me? Like how, you know, how do I make sense of this, right? Am I just being too sensitive? And so, and so that's kind of where the concept of ambient racism emerged too, because again, you know, these are individuals who are trying to make sense of these, these complex and contradict, seemingly contradictory experiences that they're having. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that idea of everyone's so nice, but also at the same time, they're not. And so trying to get a, a, a handle on, okay, well, well, what's really happening here? Um, how did your respondents kind of make sense or even, I guess, cope with some of these experiences where you're kind of um, combating with this idea of this, everyone's so nice, or even, you know, media portrayals like Portlandia, right? But then your everyday experience is still, you know, actual harassment or even just fear of violence or those just like you mentioned earlier, you walk into a space and you notice like it kind of goes quiet for a second or everybody turns and looks. So how did your respondents, how did they kind of cope with that? Um, what, you know, did it change how they thought about Portland or even thought about where they should be, kind of their place in the city? Yeah, I, you know, I had one respondent who I think uh, came up with a really telling metaphor for this type of feeling or response to ambient racism. And she was on the younger side, I think in her early 20s, she was Korean American woman. And, you know, she said that this kind of feels like where, when you're in like a bar or a building and you know that the place is not earthquake proof, like you look around and you know that this is definitely not structurally sound or like following regulations. Mm -hmm. So she said that's kind of how it feels to not be white in Portland. Like this place is full of mostly white people. And if anything happened to me, like harassment or discrimination or violence, I don't think I could count on anyone to help. At least that's how it felt to her, right? So she said, at least that's how it felt, right? Because we don't know for sure what would happen if something bad like that occurred, but it's the feeling of like knowing there's a chance and I don't feel that anyone's going to support me or anybody's going to help me in this space. So I think that that metaphor like really helped uh, kind of uh, articulate that that feeling well again like that anticipation and that it's just like built into the infrastructure of the place and it may not be coming from one person or or you know one specific specific interaction right 
And so kind of in response, I mean, people do different things in response to this feeling, right? There were some people who described never wanting to leave their house and just wow. kind of even before COVID, right? Just feeling more comfortable in a space that they could control. So after work, they just enjoyed going home to watch Netflix and hang out with their pets. And that was just, you know, comforting for them. Mm-hmm. And ironically, um, in, with some of the interviews that I did during the pandemic, there were some people who said, this staying home has actually decreased my stress level wow. because I can work from home. I'm not in these spaces all the time and under stress and feeling like I'm the only person of my race, you know, on the, you know, on the fifth floor at my work of 80 employees, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so, so there's that. And then there are individuals who, you know, really went out of their way to build community and just to find uh, like-minded people, people who are part of their racial group, who they felt they could connect to um, and share those experiences. So in a place like Portland, those uh, community spaces and that type of community building becomes all that much more important because it's really not built into anything there. You really have to go and seek it out and find that community in order to just simply get your feelings validated. Mm, yeah. I mean, you bring up a good point thinking about where is there already a supportive structure in place um, where people can connect um, or are people having to create these communities for themselves or potentially not even be able to, depending upon if they even see or interact with or come across other folks who might, who might, who they may be able to connect with um, in that way. And so it's really interesting when you shared that, that one respondent said, well, actually being at home because of the pandemic has decreased my stress. And I'm thinking about, wow, like how stressful must it have been um, for that respondent to feel like, a global pandemic, right? Um, and, and kind of this forced um, seclusion or isolation is actually better than having to navigate kind of the space of the city. Right, exactly. And I think a lot of that has to do with the sort of added load of emotional labor that a lot of uh, respondents described, either doing that in their workplace or just in the everyday kind of space of navigating the city in public, mm-hmm. um, or even their even intimate relationships as well, like dating. You know, that was something that came up in a lot of interviews. So not having a large pool of, you know, uh, people of their same race to date or people of color to date, and then just kind of having to be okay with like dating a white person, you know, and mm-hmm. all of the kind of complex issues that might come up with that. Um, But yeah, like that is another thing I wanted to touch on, too, is just the emotional labor aspect of it all. Like, you know, for example, I had um, I had one participant. She um, she's an immigrant from East Africa who had been living in the U.S. for um, a little over 10 years and had been living in Portland for at least a few years at the time that I interviewed her. And uh, she worked in public health, you know, at a kind of a state uh, building. And, um, you know, she was one of two black people on a floor of about 80 employees. Wow. And so, you know, I asked her, you know, what, what what were your experiences, you know, in in that kind of kind of workplace? And, you know, she just said it was really, really strange. And because she wasn't socialized in the United States as, you know, an African-American, it was really jarring for her to kind of experience the way that, uh, you know, black people are treated in this country. 
And so, you know, she would say things like, you know, people would be smiling at me for a little too long and I wouldn't smile back because it didn't feel good to me. But then those people would treat me poorly because I guess I didn't smile back at them. And so, you know, she actually had to go to some of her African-American friends um, who had been socializing, grew up in this country, who were like, no, 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 no. If you're at work, like sometimes you do have to smile back if you want to keep that harmony. Right. So she kind of had to be coached, um, you know, by her her black friends who grew up here in this country who said, hey, you know, sometimes you have to smile back. You have to say nice words to the people in HR who make sure you get your paycheck on time, right? So those kinds of things. And I thought that that was really telling because, you know, even just, you know, things that are minor, like smiling, the way you comport your body, the way you move through space, you know, you're kind of having to survey yourself. And a lot of other scholars have talked about this too, like Arlie Hochschild and um, Adia Harvey Wingfield has done really great work on this, and like emotional labor in the workplace. Um, and so I just thought, you know, that specific case was really interesting that she actually had to be coached by her black friends, you know, on how to navigate white space. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I mean, I think that example also shows kind of how um, a lot of these experiences can be, oh, that's just the way it is, right? If, if that's where you're from and kind of that's what you're quote unquote used to, you don't realize the extent to which ambient racism is shaping your experience of the world, um, but also impacting you, right? And so when you talked about that emotional labor, I'm also wondering, um, you know, what is the cost, right? What are the effects of this ongoing emotional labor in the face of ambient racism? And I'm not sure how much your respondents were able to speak to that or if they could even maybe identify. Um, I know you talked about some people feeling really stressed and kind of that anxiety about going into public spaces, but I'm wondering if there are other ways um, that this was really affecting their health and well-being. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, 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 it led to, you know, a lot of mental health struggles for, you know, some of the people that I interviewed. Um, I mean, there were several people, you know, who had talked about wanting to seek out a therapist uh, in the area. And, um, you know, it can be really difficult finding a therapist who might understand the complexity of your experience if they're not, you know, if they don't share that same experience. And so because Oregon's a mostly white place and Portland's a mostly white place, uh, became really difficult for, for people to find mental health resources. Um, I think on top of that too, I mean, there, you know, there were people who talked about wanting to leave, you know. Um, I think, especially when it comes to professionals of color in Portland, there's a pretty high turnover rate of people who get recruited and uh, might work there for a couple years or a few years and then just can't do it anymore. So, I, so there were several people I talked to who said, you know, I think I might be done. Uh, I, I might have to leave this place. I don't think it's worth, um, you know, all of this trouble. Um, and labor, right, extra labor that they're not getting paid for. And so, um, you know, I think that's something that a lot of workplaces are going to have to reconcile because, of course, as you know, there's a lot of happy talk around diversity right now and recruiting the most, um, you know, diverse um, uh, employees, right, and kind of trying to live up to the virtues of diversity. But what happens when those individuals get to the place and then you know, just walking to the to the bus, 
becomes a traumatizing experience or just a, an uncomfortable experience. So um, I think that's a, a kind of another result of all of the emotional labor and emotional work that gets put on communities of color and other multiply marginalized people in predominantly white spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's you know so important. The, the impact being that folks want to leave, right? Folks are looking for other spaces and places, whether it is, like you said, a workplace on the workplace level, or if it is even in a community, a city, uh, you know, a regional area, right? Trying to find other places and spaces that are going to be um, more comfortable, but also more inclusive beyond just kind of the happy talk and, and these kind of general um conceptualizations or characterizations of a city as, you know, a nice place or, you know, as this kind of happy hippie, um, good coffee place, right? And so I think that's really important to be able to think about, okay, what, what are the outcomes for folks when they're experiencing this? And then how are we or how will we change, right? Change the environment and change these interactions as well um, so that everyone can feel included and so that everyone is included as well. Yeah, you know, and that kind of became the latter chapter of my dissertation too, where, uh, as you know, you know, in sociology, we like to focus on a lot of the problems. We're really good at identifying the problems, getting real deep in the sad, depressing stuff. Um, but, you know, the, the last chapter of my dissertation dealt with resistance. And so, you know, as our Lord and Savior, Patricia Hill Collins says, wherever there is power, there is there, an exercise of power, there is also resistance, Right by default. So, you know, I I tried to focus a lot on the things that people did in their everyday life to just kind of um, maintain their mental health, Mm -hmm. um, maintain their sense of self and not feel like they had to comport themselves in particular ways. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, again, like I mentioned earlier, community building was really big, even something as simple as like creating a yoga class that's just for people of color or just for queer people of color, you know, because even the yoga class can be a a contentious space. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, there were people who talked about cooperative economics. So trying to lift up and build up the the black owned businesses and businesses owned by people of color, uh, refugee and immigrant communities in Portland. So creating like a black restaurant week or, you know, making sure that money gets circulated within those communities um, was another big thing. And because I talked to, you know, quite a few people who were professionals, they were college educated, some of them found themselves in jobs where they had a little bit of leverage to distribute money into the community in certain ways, or, you know, rub up against uh, policymakers and politicians. There were quite a few people who were like, hey, I'm in this position of power. I can move money from the place that I'm at. So I'm going to use what agency I have here and make sure the money goes to communities that I care about or to causes that I care about, um, you know, in a very material way, right? So, so that was really cool to see people just kind of using the place that they found themselves while, you know, everyday interactions were difficult and it was stressful. There was still that sense of agency in terms of like, here's the power that I do have and here's what I do have within my control and the things that I can change from where from where I sit. Mm-hmm. 
That is so key. I'm very happy to hear, you know, the, the resistance part, because as you mentioned, sociologists, we were good at the problems. And even I tell my undergrads all the time in class, I'm like, this class is going to depress you. Every single class period is going to get really depressing. And people want to know, right, where are the opportunities for resistance, for agency and to change, right? And so I think even some of the things that you shared this morning are also things that we might think about in a city like Memphis, right? Some of these same um, types of initiatives are ongoing. Um, and so I think that is one kind of promising area when we think about, okay, well, what can we do with what we have, where we are um, in order to move forward? Well, let's take another break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. And we're back here on Let's Grab Coffee. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Ash Woody, an assistant professor of African-American studies at California State University, Fullerton. And we've been talking about um, your concept of ambient racism. And, you know, as sociologists, we often are focusing on, you know, structural racism or institutional racism. And I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit about how ambient racism expands or really adds to our understanding of the effects of structural racism. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like you said, in sociology, we're very much all about um, identifying processes and structures. We, we have a pretty good grasp of how structures operate to reproduce inequalities, right? Mm -hmm. And so with the concept of ambient racism, you know, I wanted to create kind of a stronger conceptual bridge between structural racism and individual emotions. Right, so, so the idea is that ambient racism emerges from these deep structures and histories, you know, that you talked about earlier, um, that we so meticulously study in sociology, right? Um, but for racially marginalized groups and other marginalized groups, you know, those structures may manifest in our everyday emotions, right? They're not just something we look at ab abstractly as a process, they're something that, you know, affect us every day. So, um, you know, it really, I hope this concept can kind of bridge that gap so that we can see more clearly the connection between structural racism and individual emotions, kind of without reducing it to kind of maybe like a social psychological perspective, mm -hmm. right, that might just focus more on individuals or things like implicit bias or microaggressions, which are all really useful concepts, but may also miss that more structural and historical component, right? because behind every microaggression is some kind of historical or structural process, right? And so that's kind of the way that I, that I think about um, ambient racism. And in a lot of ways, this concept drew a lot from, I don't know if, if, if you um, were at ASA in 2018 or heard uh, Bonilla Silva's presidential address that year, uh, but the theme was, was race and emotions. And you know, he said that sociologists should take emotions seriously and that emotions should concern structuralists, right? Emotions are not just of concern for psychologists or social psychologists, um, you know, that emotions are something that emerge from like the racialized social system, right? Um, and, so, and so that's kind of the, the way that I think about it and, and kind of hopefully this can help connect these sort of micro and meso and macro uh, conceptions of racism that we have in sociology and, um, you know, hopefully it also just grounds it in lived experiences too, because sometimes 
the lived experience can get lost if we get too stuck in just talking structurally um, mm -hmm. and about how structures operate. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, of course, there's a lot more room to build and refine <laughs> this concept, which I hope will happen um, if people read the article and want to, you know, take the concept and run with it. Um, but that that's the way that, that I that I think about it. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you brought up Eduardo Benia Silva's um, presidential address and that focus or that call to really focus on emotions, because as he outlined in his talk, but also as your respondents show, you know, they're feeling racism or they're feeling those vestiges of racist policies and practices even in the present. And so while, you know, your respondents might not be able to point to a specific, you know, piece of history or policy, they're feeling the effects of that. And they are feeling, you know, they're feeling racism, right? And their emotions are telling them something about structure, about place, and about their place within a racialized social system. And so I think it's so key too, because it, people can relate to emotions, right? We're all feeling something, <laughs> um, even if we can't necessarily name all of our emotions, but our emotions are a way that we connect with others, right? Through those shared emotions as well. So I think it, it kind of is a way for people to understand even some of the, the larger structural processes that we might talk about as sociologists um, that might seem very complex <laughs> or not easy to understand. Whereas emotions, that is something you know, that I think most people can relate to in some way. Right. Yeah. I mean, you don't need a sociology or an ethnic studies to degree to experience that type of emotion. You know, like my mom has probably experienced ambient racism, but she, you know, might not have the language or, you know, be able to articulate where that comes from. But like, you know, um, that's, I think, a, a very shared experience for people. And again, like, I think it, this goes back to the just sort of naming you know, something that has been happening. Like I think uh, Kimberly Crenshaw says, like, if you can't name a problem, then you can't see a problem. If you can't see the problem, then you definitely can't solve it, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's that's kind of how I, I think about this too, is just sort of naming something that, you know, people have described for a long time. I mean, Du Bois talked about emotions and souls of black folk, right? Like, how does it feel to be a problem? Mm -hmm. um, and so, so, so this, you know, has been articulated um, by by race scholars and not just scholars by everyday people for 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 a really long time. So that's I kind of view my work as a sociologist to just kind of bring uh, bring that into this space, but also you know honor all of the that the 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 work and the the, the theorizing um, and the the intellectual work that that um, people of color and other marginalized people have been doing for for centuries. You know. Absolutely. So do you plan on using this concept of ambient racism in future research or what are, what are kind of your hopes um, for this line of inquiry? I mean, like I said, I hope others can take the concept and, <laughs> and make it their own and run with it. I'm kind of excited to see if anyone applies it to their own study or even like in another place. Mm -hmm. Because as, you know, we talked about Portland is very specific, this concept emerged from, you know, the specificity of a predominantly white uh, big city, but, you know, it might be interesting to know what that looks like in a place like Memphis, mm -hmm. or in a place like Los Angeles, where, where I am, 
which is, you know, huge, complex, messy, racially diverse, but also segregated, right? Like, mm -hmm. how can we apply that to uh, a place like, like LA, right? Um, this big monster. Um, because I don't think that, that, that a majority demographic whiteness is a necessary criteria for ambient racism. I think, you know, it's felt everywhere, but in different ways. Mm -hmm. So even in, you know, a neighborhood here in the LA area that's being gentrified, you know, while, you know, in aggregate, LA is a very racially diverse place, there are particular neighborhoods in which that experience of loss uh, loss of community is is occurring, right? Yeah. We also know that, you know, even in communities that are predominantly communities of color or immigrant communities, um, racism and white supremacy can still be internalized, right? It's still operating within us. We might not even have to come into contact with white people on a daily basis to feel that. I mean, um, you know, where I grew up, which is um, just south of Los Angeles in Orange County, um, right next to Little Saigon, which has one of the biggest uh, Vietnamese American populations in the U.S. Um, you know, whenever I go out to eat there or I interact with some of my co-ethnic Vietnamese people and aunties might be like, wow, I love your green eyes. Your, your green eyes are so beautiful because I have a white dad with green eyes. Um, they're like romanticizing my European features, right? And that has always happened and that kind of runs deep, right? And yet these people may not even talk to a white person, you know, for the entire week, right? Because everybody else is Vietnamese or Asian. Right. You know, I think that is, is an important part because I'm thinking now, you know, in connecting to Eduardo Benia Silva's talk, right, when he's talking about, you don't necessarily have to be having interracial interactions kind of in the present moment to still be feeling racism or feeling um, these different ideas that are governing kind of your behavior and a comment like, oh, you know, <laughs> commenting on more Eurocentric features, right? And I think that is the point. Uh, we don't necessarily have to be having these experiences in the moment, but there are a lot of influences that are shaping even our interactions with co-ethnics as well. Exactly. So it sounds like you're moving on from ambient racism. That's what I'm getting from this. That <laughs> you're ready for other researchers to apply this to cities with different histories and different present day demographics as well. Um, so what is next for you, if you don't mind sharing? <laughs> Yeah, I definitely think I want to keep working with this concept. I, you know, I don't have a specific project planned, you know, um, but I definitely think it would be interesting to apply it to the place that I find myself now, which is LA, right? Yeah. And so especially, you know, as I think about new projects, and especially in this new position that I'm in, we have, you know, a lot of freedom and flexibility to pursue the kind of projects that we really want to pursue. So I definitely would be thinking about that. But again, just, you know, I can't get my mind off of the intersection of race and place, which ambient racism is, is very much connected to. So mm -hmm. um, even thinking about, you know, um, intergroup relationships here in Southern California, like this is a place where uh, Asians and Asian Americans live in close proximity to like Latinx communities. You know, what, it, what does that relationship look like, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we have also a lot of um, sort of I have this other interest kind of in, in beach spaces and like ocean adjacent spaces um, because we have, you know, beautiful coastline here. 
that only a certain you know portion of the population gets to enjoy. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think it, it could be really interesting to look into uh, beach spaces. So even though Southern California is very racially diverse, you're mostly going to see white people surfing, swimming, doing all these recreation, you know, beach activities. Um, but there are still folks of color and queer people and queer people of color going out there surfing, swimming, playing volleyball and taking up that space. And so I think looking at these particular spaces, even in a large metropolis like LA and Orange County, um, could be really interesting because in a way it's sort of maybe similar to Portland in the sense that they might be one of the few or one of the only, except it's sort of limited to just this like recreational space. So that's kind of something that's bouncing around in my mind right now is like recreational space, place and experiences with race and racism. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so important, because I think it just goes back to what you said, you can have different, you know, smaller areas like a like a city or particular neighborhoods. But though the overall composition may be very racially and ethnically diverse, when we get down to that neighborhood level, we still see a lot of segregation, and then how that is governing experiences within the city, whether, you know, in a downtown area, if I'm thinking about Memphis, and how, you know, race and place shapes the experiences of downtown or in your case, you know, the beach, right. And these recreational, um, areas. So a lot of, a lot of potential directions for future research. So I'll definitely be on the lookout for that. Well, I want to thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. It has certainly been a pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Laybourne. It's really been great to just be in this space and thank you for all the work you're doing just in terms of public sociology and, and getting ideas out there. Thank you again to Dr. Ash Woody for joining us this morning and having a conversation about their paper, Emotions and Ambient Racism in America's Whitest Big City. Of course, here talking about Portland. As I mentioned earlier, when I read their paper in Social Problems, a journal, I was just really struck with the connections that I could see to our city, right, to Memphis, and thinking about the historical legacies that have shaped um, our city, both in who is here, in the layout of the city, um, in some of the different decisions, right, that our own lawmakers have made um, about the city as well. And I was just thinking about how all of that shapes our experience of the city today. And it's something I'm probably going to continue thinking about. And even contemporarily, we can think about um, our city, our city's rich history, um, thinking here, particularly around music and what we embrace and, and what we don't really advertise as much as kind of our strengths in the city. So I'm so happy to know that Dr. Woody is thinking about expanding the research, but also hoping to see other scholars take up this concept of ambient racism and continue to add upon it and use it to examine other cities as well. Well, for today's positive note, I just want to leave you a quote by Nelson Mandela that says, it always seems impossible until it's done. This has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. 
I'm Sana. I'm here every Monday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. And if you missed any part of today's show, don't worry. You can catch the replay on WYXR.org. And all the shows are also archived in podcast format wherever you stream podcasts. I will see you back here next week.